Well, good day, Fellowship family. It's good to have you here. As I was driving here this morning, I was just thanking God for the opportunity to be with you all. You're my church family. That's what we are. We're a family of families. And so we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're here. We're actually going to be having a family conversation. So if this is your first time and you're a guest... You're probably thinking of this anyway, because every time I go into the church, I, a church, even if it's not here, I wonder, how are they going to talk about giving and generosity and money? How, do, how does a church talk? Because how we talk about it is important. And so we're going to be talking about that. And uh, as we do that, here's, here's why. Because we're in a series called Follower, and we're looking at what a follower of Jesus looks like. And in the area of generosity, we can't ignore, at least in the scriptures, that a follower gives generously. A follower of Jesus gives generously to the work of the Lord. And here's where I get this. If you just trace out the narrative of the New Testament church, the first followers of Jesus, they didn't have a lot of money at all. They were living in what we would call now third world countries. And they were struggling to make ends meet, yet they were generous. How could they do this? Some of them gave everything they had to take up an offering for the brothers and sisters who were starving in Jerusalem. How could they do that? How could they do that? Why? What did they believe about God? And what did they view about money? I think this is an important thing for us to think, because if we are following in the same family, if we are all related through Christ, then we need to be focused on God, and we need to put money in its rightful place. And here's what I believe about money. I believe money is more powerful than we think. I think God views this even more clearer than I can. Money is more powerful than we think. It has much greater of a sway on us. Even when we talk about the word money, either heart rates go up. Some heart rates go up. I've had people leave the church because we even talked about it. And, and that's the problem with the church is we stay away from these, these topics because we don't want to upset people. We don't want to make people uncomfortable. Yet we send them out every week into a world that has your lunch. I mean, debt is destroying. The philosophies of this world on money are killing us. And so why would we not talk about it, especially if we love you and we want this for you? So it's more powerful than we think, but it's also less valuable than we think. And I think that's the key we need to hear. And that's the one that melts my heart is because we place far too much value on money. God sees it in a totally different way. As a matter of fact, eternity in heaven, when it talks in the scriptures about heaven, it talks about streets paved with gold. What does that mean? That doesn't elevate gold. That actually shows us, you know, what's a very common thing we have. We have gravel and we have asphalt, which is just spray-painted gravel that holds together. (laughs) And this is what streets are going to be paved with in heaven. Seriously, gravel, gravel. So here's what I want you to do. Next time you're checking out at Dillon's or Hy-Vee or Walmart, just take gravel with you and go, here, this is heaven's currency, you know? (laughs) And they're going to go, boy, haven't you grown up? Three-year-olds pay with, play with, with rocks and pay with rocks. See, it doesn't. You are so much more valuable than what you make. You are. You're far more significant than the amount of money you have in your checkbook or in your IRA or your 401 that's become a 201, whatever. I mean, you are far more valuable than what you have. 
Because God loved you so much, he sent his one and only son to this world to live for you, to die for you, and to rise again from the dead. We've got to have a different way. And that's going to mean that we dethrone money from its position in our lives. If it's far more important than we think, that's why Jesus talked about money. He didn't talk about it because it was valuable to him. He talked about it because it's right where our heart is. And where your heart is, that's his target in our lives. Not what you do, how much you make, what you have, what you don't have. He's much more focused on what's the direction and the focus of your heart. And that's why he sees it's far more valuable than it needs to be, kids. And so in this family conversation, what we want to do is kind of talk to you a little bit about where money might be in our lives and where it could be in our lives if Jesus were on the throne. Because when Jesus is leading our lives, everything follows, right? And that means everything. Our sexuality follows Jesus. Our view of things and money and possessions follows Jesus. Our view of the world and the value of people, our view of how we treat people, what we say to people, how we live, that follows Jesus. It's a follower of Jesus. It doesn't get more complicated than this. A follower of Jesus follows Jesus. And so let's talk about what it looks like for money to follow Jesus. Money is either going to be a controlling obligation or a dethroned opportunity. Jesus said it when he was asked what's the, uh, he was saying, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And the Greek word for money there was mammon, which literally meant in that day, money and everything money buys, whether it buys you significance. You can't serve God and have money on the throne of your life. You cannot follow him. So if you have money at your throne, if I have money at the throne, it's going to be a controlling obligation. How do I know this? Look at our world. Our world says spend more than you make. The average American family is living on 105% of their income. That doesn't seem like a month, a lot on a weekly basis, but you just take one week that grows into a month, that grows into a year, that grows into 10 years, and we're talking about big bucks. Right now, the average amount we owe on a credit card is $14,000 at high percentage rates, and we can float those from one card to the next. But the problem is, is it's eating our lunch, and it's an obligation. An obligation is a have-to. Have-tos rob us of joy. They really do. You have to pay this electric bill, and they don't care whether or not, or will shut you off. That's a have-to. That's an obligation. But an opportunity is a get-to. We have joy when money gets to do things. Like, hey kids, we get to go on vacation this year. Yes, yes, we're excited about that. Kids, we get to pay our taxes. No one gets excited about that. It's an obligation. Do you see the difference? And then it's a controlling versus something that's no longer controlling us. How many Lord of the Rings fans do we have here? Okay. So you remember Schmeagel, right? This guy, he finds the ring and he goes, my precious. And then he morphs into Gollum, which is this. Happy Halloween, everyone. (laughs) Yeah, it's my precious and everything, everything. It's this controlling force. And we go, oh, that's the story. That's fiction. It could never happen in my life. Yeah. Someone's in the Walmart parking lot and they open up their door and guess whose side of the car they hit? Mine. I get out. 
And I get out going, you're a pastor, you're a pastor, you're a pastor at Fellowship Bible Church, you're a pastor, there's, there's cameras, there's cameras, there's cameras. And they look at me and go, sorry, and they walk away. God, get them, amen. <laughs> My precious was just dented. Yes, we don't move into Gollum until we lose something of great value. I mean, it can ruin us. It can be that controlling force. So we've got to live with money off the throne. We can't let it control us because we'll just move right into obligation. Folks, when money is leading us, it's going to lead us usually into excess and it's going to lead us away from generosity. Because every step you're at, everyone, every place you buy, especially online, has you pegged. They know what you've been looking at. They know how to market. Uh, that's why you're on Facebook and you go, wait a minute, I just saw that on Amazon. Yes, because my precious wants you. Yeah, we've got to be careful on this. And so secondly, uh, money can either be uh, something you love or your things. You can love your things. Or you can love God with your things. There's a difference, a huge difference. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest command? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And if we were to bring this into the things that we have in life, I know this is in scripture. This is in italics. So it means it's my words and with all your things. This means everything, everything we have, everything we are. It's, it's not that God just wants a part of you to keep someone happy or to keep a ministry funded or to keep a church going. God wants all of you. He wants all of you. And you will either love yourself or you'll love God with yourself. And you will either love your things or you will love God with your things. There's a huge difference. So why did God give you an income? To love him with it. Why did God give you a house? To love him with it. To set it free. To invite people over and be generous with it. Why did God give you that car? To, to love people with it. Why did God give you that company or that membership or whatever else God gave you? To love him with it. If you can't love God with it, it probably shouldn't be in your hands. But don't let that limit you. Don't clear everything off the table and not think about how can I love God with this today? Because he wants you to be generous with what you have. Things aren't bad until we worship them and we love them more than we love God. Money also, you can be threatened when we talk about it or you can be thankful when we talk about it. I like what Proverbs says about generosity. He says, one, one gives freely yet grows all the richer. So life becomes richer when you're generous. And by the way, aren't we, don't we all love generous people? I love generous people. I like them as my friends. Yeah, I do. I don't like stingy people because they're always cutting the bill unequally with you, right? The generous person says, I'll pick up the check. You know, thank you. Can you be my friend? <laughs> uh, we, we tend to lead towards that. We, we love relationships that are generous. But it says another withholds what he should give and he only suffers want. And I think our American culture is learning this. When we spend it all, we really aren't fulfilled. When we spend more than enough, more than we make, we spend into debt and debt becomes our owner and debt is on our throne. Man, we just want more and we just think we want more. So the iPhone X comes out and we go, oh, I want that too. We haven't paid off the one you have. I know, but I want that. I think you're in college. Yes, but I'm taking all that debt. Yes, but you find the money to get what you want. And so whenever we talk about giving then and you're in that role, it's very easy for you to go, all the church talks about is money because you're threatened. 
You're threatened. I'm threatened by money. I think in my marriage, that's one topic that as we've talked about, I've kind of been more sensitive. And why am I threatened? Because some of us, including me, can take our significance based on how much we have, how much we make. Um, and, and so we can feel, I take on money as our identity. We can see our own worth by how much we have, our own significance. And that's totally, totally against how God sees us. He sees rich and poor, male and female, any race. He sees us all crafted in the image of himself. And he loves us as valuable people with dignity and infinite worth that he would send his one and only son. So here's how it goes in my family. My wife can come up to me and she can go, Joe, you look like you've put on 10 pounds. You probably need to lose some weight. And I can go, okay, no problem. I can do that. She goes, hey, Joe, um, that outfit doesn't look good on you. For some reason, I just, you probably need to change it. And I can go up and change it. Guys, we can't say that to our wives. <laughs> Don't go there. Don't go there. It doesn't work. You can't say to your wife, um, honey, I think you put on 10 pounds. I mean, I haven't, lo- haven't been looking a lot, but I, when I look, it's... And honey... You know, when she goes, how does this dress look? You can't go, woo, that is not doing you any favors. You need to go upstairs. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. Why? Because their identity, at least my wife from time to time, her identity can be how she looks. And our American culture conditions a woman to be objectified into that. And it's not her worth. And no husband, hopefully, means it to hurt. But he would never get that. I had one guy say, I'd like to talk to my wife. I said, no man has ever survived that conversation. Don't do it. <laughs> but here's where it gets me. When my wife says, I think we need to do that to our backyard. I think we need to do this project. And it involves money. <gasps> what? <gasps> you, I don't make enough? I didn't say that. I'm not a value to you. I didn't say that. But I've let money determine my identity. And so we can't be threatened by it, right? We need to be thankful. So what breaks me away from being threatened by it is to be more thankful, to call out what God has given me. He's given me the gospel, priceless, inexpressible gift. He's given me the goodness. I have a mind of Christ because God loved me and he gave me. And I can have the goodness of God through Christ in my life. That's something to be thankful about. And money can't buy that. Think about the priceless things money can't buy. And then I move from things money can't buy to things money can buy. And I thank God for the opportunity to live here, to be a part of this church, to be a part of life, to have a family, to have people love me. When I call that out, then I move towards thankfulness. I'm either going to be moved by guilt or by grace with money. Paul said, and we're going to talk about this topic a little bit more, in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 7, he says, As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. And what he's saying, this act of grace was a grace of generosity or of giving. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but you will either be moved by grace or guilt. If you're moved by guilt, and we've been there, have you ever been a part of a, a church or an organization that says, guys, Kittens are dying. They're dying and we've got to take up an offering for this and save one more kitten. And you're moved and you may cry as you write that check or text that gift and you meet that need. But it's built more of, I don't want to be responsible for one more kitten dying. 
or folks, if we don't get that money, we're shutting it down. So we're locking the doors, we're taking the offering, no one leaves until the money's raised. (laughs) Yeah, that makes people want to stay. That's like the person, the family member who's always asking for a handout. Don't be that person at the family reunion. Hey, uncle, I heard it's going really well for you. Can I have a loan? Usually uncle will have be moved and go, okay, how much do you need? Okay, I'll write this out to you. Here, get away from me. And they give that, and then at the next family reunion, they ask again. And pretty soon they start going, no, I'm not going to give you anything. And you resent them. You know, we can be moved, but guilt is rarely sustained in an ongoing faithful practice of generosity. So we want to take guilt away from it. We want to move you towards grace. Because when we give, we show a picture of a greater God who's more generous than we are. And he's moved and we can grow in grace. We can grow and and giving actually liberates us from money being on the throne to Jesus being on the throne. And what do we find when we follow Jesus? It's just more grace. Here's Here's the inside scoop. We're not here because we deserve to be here. None of us have lived an exceptional life this week that goes, whew, I can go to church now because I've been so good. No, we come here because we're broken, we're messed up, and we come to the cross to admit our need, turn from our sin, and trust Jesus. That's all about grace. If we got what we deserved, none of us could stand. But we get what we don't deserve. We get what's unfair. Even in our culture, it's unfair to be forgiven and not to pay the price. And yet God does that. We can be moved by guilt or grace. Last picture I have is with money, you could either have a closed fist or an open hand. And I like what it says about God. And the psalmist writes in Psalm 145, verse 16. It says, you open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. You are a living thing. And that's how God is with us. He opens his hands. He satisfies the desire of every living thing. So everyone, just real quick, just so you don't fall asleep, audience participation, hold the closed fist. What does the closed fist say? It says, I'm closed. The closed fist says, this is mine. I mean, our two-year-olds do this with their toys. They're stuffed animals' heads like this. When it's mine, we don't want to give it. We're closed off. We don't want to hear it. Now, everyone... Give me the open hand. What's this this a picture of? Keep it out. Come on, people, everyone. Thank you. Okay, work with me. Work with me. What is the open hand? You're not too cool for school on this one. The open hand is someone in need, right? It's someone who says, man, I need. But the open hand won't be filled until you open your hand. Because that's the hand of the giver. It reflects you. Put the hand down now. Thank you for enjoying audience participation with me. That's the picture. And it's not going to happen if money's on our throne. It's just not going to happen. We're going to close that fist all the time because money on the throne will destroy your life. Money on the throne doesn't care how you feel. You just got to make the next. Money on the throne objectifies you to what you make, how much you have, or how much you don't have. And you feel what it's saying to you. You feel unimportant when you don't make an income that's big. You feel unimportant when you don't have all these next things you need to buy. And so we've got to practice the open hand. How do we give? How do we do that? How do we do that? So take a look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Please open up your Bibles if you have them. And by the way, if you don't have them, feel free to go up and get one, get a Bible and take it home with you if you don't have one there. 
But in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, as you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of background. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, hence Corinthians, okay? And they were a church that were very wealthy. They were very wealthy and very affluent. And they were right in, they were the cool church in the Roman world at that time. I mean, they had all the technology. They had all the, the glitz. They were the place to live, but they were spending it all on themselves. Can you imagine that? A culture that spends it all on themselves. I just can't imagine that. Oh, it's pretty much in our world today. We're just another iteration of Corinth. And their brothers and sisters who were part of the church in Jerusalem were starving. They had a famine in Jerusalem. And so Paul said, look, I've planted a lot of churches. I'm going to write to those churches. And I'm going to ask them to take up an offering for the church in Jerusalem. So church, do this. Take up the offering. And I'll send some guys to get it. And we'll make sure it's secure. And we'll get it to Jerusalem. And we'll help people. And the churches that responded fascinated Paul because the poorest churches were the first to give. Think about that. Those who had the least gave the most in comparison to how much they gave. So a church like Philippi, he would say, out of severe poverty, God has welled up in you rich generosity and showed me more a picture of the grace of God. So thank you, church in Philippi. But in Corinthians, that's why we have second Corinthians, actually, because they were a messy church and Paul had to write them back. This was the reminder letter. He said, hey, you wanted to give, but you didn't show up. You didn't give it all. Think about this. The, The church in Corinth had the most. They money was on their throne, but they were questioning money or Jesus. Who should we go? So Paul writes basically four chapters in a book. I'd hate that. I mean, that would be the legacy I wouldn't want written about me. Four chapters in the Bible about how I didn't follow God. (laughs) But that was Corinth. And Paul's writing them. And he writes, says, here's the point. Here's the point in generosity. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Three things he mentions here. He says we can't think about it, about what we're losing. If we think about what we're losing, we want to lose as little money as possible. So I want to give as as little money. So what you put in to God's field and his work, that's, that's linked to the harvest that he'll do in your life. Now, a lot of people say this is related. He's re, it's related to how much you'll make or what kind of car he'll give you or what kind of house. That is not biblical, and we don't see that pattern in the New Testament church. We actually saw people who gave and stayed poor in the New Testament church, but they were after something greater than what money could buy. That's what God does. But let's look at this. They were called to give generously. How much is generous? Well, how much of God do you want giving to reflect? And by the way, what is generous to you? What's an amount that's generous? That if someone were to give you that amount, you would go, wow, they were very generous. Write that to God. Give that to God. Because that's a differing amount. 
And that's how I would say it. Just give what you think is generous, what's significant. Don't give God something that doesn't matter to you. Give him something that's significant because he's your first and best. Secondly, we want to give willingly. It says each one must give as he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. In other words, church, back off of guilt and shame. Don't lock the doors and take the offering. Do it in a way that we're willingly, that we all go, yes, I get to be a part. I'm willing to be a part of God's work in generosity. And so if you're married, that's why I say always have the conversation with your spouse before you give. Because it's something God wants to do to bring you together. Because so many times couples have come apart by giving. Early in my marriage, um, when we would have this conversation, my wife would always go higher than me on that. And I'd go, okay, we'll do it. Write off the check. And I'm thankful I have a generous wife. Now, after 25 years of marriage, I just shoot way beyond her so I can beat her at this all the time. (laughs) But you need to be willing, because if one spouse gives a number that the other spouse resents, it'll tear you apart in generosity. So I'd rather have you give less if you could give less willingly and open to the Lord. But see what God does. Sometimes spouses look at the low and the high and they meet in between so that the lower comes up and the higher comes down a little bit. I just encourage you to give willingly and then give joyfully. It says God loves a cheerful giver. God takes great delight in cheerful giving. Now, I just need to let you in an inside scoop with God. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't. It's not like God's bankrupt. He's, how am I going to need meet the needs of God? How am I going to, oh, oh, you guys, can you help? You know, no, he's not like that. He owns it all. Everything is his. He wants his kids along for the ride. So this week is Halloween. And if you're a grandparent or you have a, you're a parent of young kids, your young kids are going to go out and they're going to go trick-or-treating. They're going to get a bucket or a pillowcase full of candy. And right after they wipe their nose, they're going to reach down into that candy and they're going to pull it up and they want, here, you want some? And you're going to go, candy's not good for me, right? You're not going to do that. You're going to go, thank you so much. Now, do you need candy? Do any of you need more candy? Sorry. It's just their precious, right? We just, we go after that and we take it because the one who gives it to us, we love. And we love to see our kids when they're, our grandkids when they're generous. We love to see, I love to see my kids still to this day. I love it. Love to hear about where they gave and how they're giving. And those are great family stories because when it's joyful, it just warms your heart. And when you trust something to your kids and they give it away, man, you just step back and go, yeah. Jesus is barking in their hearts. And I love that. That brings joy. And it ought to be joy. I get to do this. That's where where giving liberates money. It liberates money from from a throne in your life to an opportunity in your life. Okay, so let's keep reading in this passage. Because this is going to show us, it's going to answer a pretty good question for us. And that is, if I give, will God take care of me? That's a big one. Because fear keeps us on the sidelines of generosity. And what Paul's going to say is you can trust God more than you can trust your things. Let's take a look at this. He says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. So having all sufficiency 
In all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. There's an operative word there I want you to just underline if you have your Bibles open. God is made able to make all. Every time you see all there, just underline it. All grace abound to you, having all sufficiency in all things at all times. That answers the question. If I do this, will God meet my need this week? All times. Yes. Will he meet my need so that I have enough? You can trust in him for that. Will I lose all my significance and worth and value if I give this? No. All sufficiency. He'll be enough for you. And then he says, as it is written, he quotes this passage. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And then he kind of interprets what this looks like for us. He says, now he who supplied seed for the, to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You're going to be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Underline those two words, every, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. What does God do with what we give? First thing he does is he supplies for the need. God supplies for your need. He supplies for another's need. And when you open your hand, you meet needs. And what do people say when a need is met? Thank you. What will the church in Jerusalem say? Thank you. What will the church in Jerusalem say about the church in Corinth? Thank you, God, for them. They met our need. They took care of us. Our children are fed. Our families didn't starve because they shared with us. God supplies needs. He does that because God loves to meet needs. And we can join him. We've got a heavenly father who says, let's go on this adventure. Let's meet needs. Who will do it? Who will do it with me? And when we give, we have the opportunity to meet a need. I absolutely love to meet needs with people. There was a time I saw giving like this, but God's word, the Holy Spirit, and my wife have taught me to be generous, and I now love to meet needs. I'm no longer threatened when someone asks. I don't always, I'm not always able to meet every need, and my goodness, that shows me I need more than myself. I need the whole church involved in this, but I've seen God meet needs here. There was a time when Fellowship Bible Church When we were 100 people, we gave $200 outside of our church. Typically on a month over the course of a year, we give now about $50,000 a month outside of this church, not attached to anything here. God's grown us from giving 2% to giving 20% of every dollar given here to move it out and meet needs in our community and around the world, giving the good news with the good works of the gospel. I mean, God meets needs. He just loves to do that. And he loves us to be a part of it. Secondly, God also does, he multiplies something. So take a look at this. He says in verse 13, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace Of God upon you. Look at this. What does he do? He multiplies grace. If you underline the word grace in this whole passage, from verse 6 to 15, you just see that grace is abounding in you. Grace is shown through you. When people receive and their needs are met, they see it as a picture of God's grace. God loves to multiply more than you could 
ever do, more than whatever you give is worth. He wants to take things that cost money and translate it into things that money could never buy. And how do we do that? When we give. God loves to multiply that grace. And look at how he shows it here. Look at how Paul kind of illustrates it. It's, it kind of takes place in how we're planting. And when you're planting, you can kind of look at what I have and what I'm ready to give with an open hand. And God doesn't want us just to look at that amount and go, I'm giving this. This is so good. No, he wants us to look not at what we're planting, but ultimately the harvest. He wants us to look at the field, not the seed. But it all starts with the seed going into the field. And when you first start giving, it kind of feels more like a transaction. Seed going from your hand into the field. And in the old school way of planting, those of you farmers who till and plant and fertilize at the same swoop, okay? In the old days, we had to disc it and then plant it. A planted field just looks just like a disc field. It doesn't look any different, but the seed is in it and the opportunity is there. But what happens is God multiplies that seed because that seed then goes into a plant that produces more seed. Let's take a look. We're in Kansas, right? Last time I checked. (laughs) The rest of the world isn't in Kansas anymore, but we are. And uh, we know wheat here for most of us. Most of us have a connection to a farm in some capacity, relative or distant relative. Wheat, for every seed that goes into the ground, uh, the stalk comes up, it reaps about eight heads of wheat for each seed, and there's 40 seeds or pieces of grain on each one of those heads. Eight times 40 is 320. In Kansas, that's the multiplier that every farmer works with on a good yield. Now, in Wisconsin, God's country, just kidding, (laughs) we do corn in Wisconsin. And for every kernel of corn that goes into the ground, there's 700 kernels that come out. God's multiplier in Wisconsin, not that I prefer it, but it's just, it's 700 there. Now, if you invest money on this multiplier, we would be foolish to miss out. One dollar in. $320 back. Who's with me? We would be foolish not to do it. But I know there's skeptics, right? Put your money in and you will get money out. That's not God's multiplier of money. It's just what he calls here, a harvest of righteousness. Okay? God has more to give us than we could ever give him. Now think with me. He said he provides seed for the sower, food for bread, but If you were to take that 320 from one gone in and just plant it again, it would be 100,000. If you take that 100,000 and plant it again, it would be 32 million in three plantings. So that's something about the more we trust to God, the more of him he shows us. It's that picture, that harvest of righteousness. That's the multiplier. Now, what is zero times 320. It's still zero. That's the problem with multiplication. I struggled with it as a little kid because zero times whatever is still zero. And as long as we do this with a closed fist, we move and we kind of rob ourselves of this of a multiplier greater than whatever we lose or we think we lose or what we give. And so we're called here. Let's keep reading. This is the last verse. 
In verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Underline that word inexpressible. Paul actually made up that word. It's not found anywhere else in the Greek New Testament or in Greek literature. It's kind of like my word, fantabulous. It makes sense to me. It's out of, it's inexpressible and it doesn't work for Scrabble, but it's a descriptor. It's a, it's an adjective in my life. That's fantabulous. When I don't have words, I say that word. Thanks be to God for something I can't express. And he's talking about this. He's pairing that word and the gift of Jesus to generosity. Ultimately, what God wants to do with our giving is he wants to glorify the cross. He wants us to give in such a way that people go, my goodness, that's not normal. And that shows me something greater that's at work in your life. And we need to be people who go, that's all about Jesus. Our giving needs to be a segue into saying, this is what God has done. He's not made money at the throne. Jesus is on the throne. My money follows. God has blessed me with it, or I don't have enough of as much as uh, I used to have, or I don't have as much as that person or that person. But God has given me this, and I'll use it, and I'll be sacrificial with it. I love what Paul says about the love of Jesus. He says, love as God has loved us, as Christ has loved us, and gave himself up for us. Giving is giving up yourself. And it's more than money. It's more than that money. It's about our whole lives. And so, therefore, here's just how I want to end. I want you to think of this. If you look at your notes there and what God does, the first one where he meets needs... That's a transactional thing. When you give in the offering or when you go online and you set it up regular online or you text give or whatever you do in giving here, that sounds and it feels like a transaction from my hand to the work of God. But then God does something. He wants to engage you, not just so that you're doing a transaction. He doesn't want us to give and walk. He wants us to be relational. He wants us to engage the people in the places where we're giving. That's why we call it, don't just give money here. Give your whole life here. Give what God wants to do in your life, either inside or outside of our church, in serving. Get into relationships with people God loves because when relationships move our giving, guess what? We're more open to give. It's not transactional, it's relational. And then there's gonna be moments when it's sacrificial. When for no other reason, we go, I don't know how I'm gonna give like this, but I'm going to give because there's a need and I'm going to meet that need and my heart is in this and and I'm going to do that. And we've had sacrificial giving moments here. We've asked people to not do this so that you can do something greater with this. We can ask people to stop or not love your things with this, but love God with this in such a way that it's so sacrificial. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, when I've done that, it's kind of scary. But ultimately, I've always grown in my walk when I have given up something of great value to me for something of greater value for God. So here's where I want you to take this message because ultimately I'm not going to be the one who moves you to give. It's got to be what is God saying to me? Out of everything that you've seen, as you've seen the vision that really money is more powerful than we think, but it's really less valuable than we think, what should I do as a result of that? How do I get money off the throne of my life? I start giving. So begin, begin somewhere. As God leads you to do that, begin somewhere that's generous, willing, and joyful. Begin. If you are giving, what would it look like to grow in the grace of giving? What would it look like to add a percentage or to give more? 
so that you can plant more and be part of a greater harvest of what God is doing in the world. And others, if you feel you're doing really well in this, where is an area we can sacrifice so that we can experience a greater blessing, not a better car or a better home, but a greater picture of the grace of God in our lives and the glory of the cross. Folks, we're followers. We're followers of Jesus, which means money needs to be off the throne and Jesus needs to be on it. That God might be glorified, money might be dethroned, and Jesus would be lifted up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for loving us, loving us enough to tell us the truth, loving us enough to show us a picture today of what it looks like to be generous. And Father, I do thank you for placing more value on us than we could ever make, for giving us greater dignity than anything consumerism or materialism could ever teach us, and for setting our hearts and our lives and our hands free to give as an expression of the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross where Jesus loved us and gave up himself for us. It's in the name of Jesus and for his glory that I pray. Amen.